Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, here we are. We're, we're finishing up uh, all, the, all the problems of evil problems, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> that's so right. that's what we're doing. So uh, John Frame in his uh, uh, Apologetics, the Justification for Christian Belief, uh, is talking about all these theories of the theodicy, but the, why evil exists. And so uh, he's kind of broken them down into the, kind of three points, uh, uh, subheadings. And so... Um, we're going to complete the, the last of them by uh, kind of looking at uh, uh, theodicies as they focus on God and also uh, on a, uh, a, a topic where uh, the theodicy doesn't even answer the question. So uh, that's what will uh, be going on from here. All right. So uh, we've we've uh, caused upended uh, the free will defense and Arminianism. Uh, not bad in about uh, four pages there. And uh, of course, uh, we're not covering everything that uh, Frame does. And I've Frame would probably say that he's not even covering every, everything that Arminianism would come back and say as well. But he moves on here to uh, character building defense, something again that uh, Scott Christensen in his book uh, covered here as well um, and uh, praised it in certain areas uh, like like he does uh, uh, in, in other places as well. And here, uh, Frame says the third unbiblical defense based on contribution of evil in God's plans is that uh, we'll consider something uh, called uh, Irenian, uh, after the church father, Inerius, who employed it. In modern times, it has been used by John Hick, who has called it the soul-making theodicy. The argument is this. It's that man was created in a state of moral immaturity. For man to come to full maturity, it was necessary for him to undergo various forms of pain and suffering. So, uh, you know, uh, you have... Um, uh, um, King Arthur, uh, he's, he's, he's the, the given, uh, the sword lady in Lake, uh, and, and told that he's going to be a King. Well, now what does he have to do? Well, now he has to go on the journey of finding the, 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 the cup and, and, uh, his, his chosen Knights have to go through, uh, various, um, uh, plot points that get them from this, uh, uh, uh idea of, of Camelot to, a, f a full rendering of, of what Camelot is and, and the idealized uh, uh, city that he brings about. And he becomes the idealized uh, uh, king through mm -hmm. his hardships as well. So uh, th this is what evil does to us is it takes us from one state to a, a greater state. Right. And so notice what he's doing here now. He's going through these various, what he believes, non-biblical responses and defenses to the problem of evil. Right. Best possible world, free will defense, and now this character building defense. The reason why there's evil is because God is, you know, as Hick uh, points out or attempts to argue, is a soul making. God somehow wasn't finished in his, in the creation process. And so he has to allow us to go through more issues, evil, as it were, in order to improve us and, and, and make us better. Right. Now, um, <clears throat> Frame says that it's true that suffering sometimes builds character, right? And he references Hebrews uh, 12, right? Where God does punish us in order to make us uh, better, right? And also it shows that we're his children. Mm -hmm. He says he thinks it's unbiblical to turn this principle, that is the Hebrews 12 principle, uh, into a full-scale theodicy. For one thing, Scripture teaches that Adam was not created morally immature, you know, with a need to develop character through suffering. Right? Adam was fine, right? 
Furthermore, scripture teaches that not all suffering builds character. Right? Unbelievers suffer and often learn no lessons from it. <laughs> and, and not all character improves uh, as a result of suffering. Right? Believers are, so, so you know, that's an, an issue there. He says, believers are created anew in Christ. The basic change from sin to righteousness is a gift of God's grace. So our characters can be improved without suffering. Right. It can come as a gift of God's grace. And moreover, he says, our sanctification will be perfected in heaven, not through some type of purgatory of suffering, but through God's own action. And so suffering, you know, doesn't always improve character, and it's not the only way to improve character, right? And uh, so he doesn't think that you can build a whole defense, for, you know, from this issue uh, that Hick um, attempts to do. And so the next one he deal, deals with is uh, actually brought about by uh, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, and he argues that a stable environment is necessary for human life. So uh, this one's kind of uh, termed as the stable environment defense. So th this, uh, this theory states that to live happily and productively requires a universe of regular law so that we can make plans and fulfill them. If when I reach for my comb in the morning, it randomly turned into a tortoise, I would not be able to develop a dependable plan and practice of combing my hair. But, says Lewis, a stable environment opens up the possibility of evil. It means, for example, that the law of gravity will not be temporarily repealed to save me from falling down the stairs. And there's the evil right there. How, yeah. how dare God do this to me by uh, allowing me to uh, not float off into space when I'm about ready to trip because I'm looking down at my phone rather than the steps in front of me? <laughs> right. So the stable environment defense then says that we need a stable environment in order to be happy and productive, right? Yeah. So what's the problem with that? Well, it says, obviously, this is true enough to a certain extent, but it, but does a stable environment necessarily produce evil, right? Is it a sufficient cause for evil? And he says, certainly not, right? How does a stable environment uh, bring about evils of the human heart, for instance, right? The spirit of rebellion against God has nothing to do with the stable environment. <laughs> so although he says some evils may certainly be traced approximately to natural laws in a stable environment, these are not sufficient explanations for the problem of evil. The Bible never, he tells us, and again, he's getting back to his point that these are non-biblical answers, he says the Bible never refers evil to such a source. Uh, to do so would be to blame uh, creation, right? It's the environment, than our own hearts. And he says the Bible doesn't do that. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, next we turn the tables and we look at God and the reason for evil and God's agency. And so one of the uh, defenses uh, that is brought about is the divine weakness defense. So many have urged some sort of divine weakness or inability as the solution to the problem of evil uh, is that God does not overcome all evil because he cannot do so. So this is just easy. The, the, we just remove all powerful from God and the, the problem of evil solves itself. We're That's done. right. Whew, it's glad. Done. Glad, that, glad there's no questions after that one. <laughs> so, okay, but so God does not overcome all evil because he cannot do so, although he does his best. 
And, you know, isn't that what we ask for our children? Exactly. That you just what try else, your what best. else would we expect? Right. That's right. right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is the answer of process theology and also of uh, Harold S. Kushner's popular book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which I have heard about and um, we'll keep it there. This solution exactly. denies the historic Christian doctrines of divine omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty while seeking to preserve God's attributes of goodness, which... Man, talk about biting your nose to save your face there. <laughs> Yet scripture itself not only fails to teach the solution, but firmly contradicts it. On God's omniscience, uh, see Psalm 139, Isaiah 46, 10, Hebrews 4, 11, 13, 1 John 3, 20, and omnipotence, uh, Psalm 115, 3, Isaiah 14. I mean, just, just, just go through the Bible. And if, if you can, if you can honestly hear the words of, of God going, listen, uh, we're, we're in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, we tried our best. Let's go out there and have, have some fun. Oh, look, I, I can, I can part the red seat. Uh, come, come on over. Hey, look, I can't believe, I can't believe we almost didn't make it. Good, good job team. All right. Now let's, uh, let's go to the desert and we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens from there. That's absolutely not the case that we see in scripture. And so uh, this, this seems like a divine weakness defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, again, this isn't biblical, right? Which is what he's trying to point out here. And it really, again, like we saw earlier in the chapter, this really uh, doesn't give us any hope, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of evil ever being dealt with if God is too weak to, uh, you know, to resolve these various issues. So yeah. this how, is can, how can I know he is going to pay for all of my sin? I sin a yeah. lot. How, how, yeah. how do I know that he's able to pay for Constantine's sin? He sinned a lot. How do I know that he's able to pay for uh, my children's sin? Uh, all, all, all these things are come up in the question if he's just unable to, to overcome evil. Or how about just at the end of the book? How do I know Revelation ends appropriately? It's It yeah. seems like... Uh, that that's all up in the air from where I'm standing. Yeah. Yeah. So this one clearly is unbiblical and it really doesn't work practically as well. Yeah. The next one with regard to evil and God's agency has to do with what he calls the indirect cause defense, right? The indirect cause defense. And he says the indirect cause defense differs from other defenses that we've taken a look at in that it is rather commonly found in Reformed theology. Uh, for instance, Cornelius Ventil himself endorses um, this particular defense in his discussion of Calvin, um, use of it uh, against Pigius. Uh, so Gordon Clark also makes use of it, he tells us. Uh, the argument seems to be that since God is the indirect rather than the direct cause of evil, he bears no blame for it. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. He tells us that Clark explains the distinction this way. God is the ultimate cause of my book, but he is not the author. I am. Therefore, I bear responsibility for its contents, not God. So the author is the closest cause to the effect, the proximate cause. Right. And so the author then is the cause of, of what's in the book although God is the ultimate cause. And so now we've kind of removed God. He's kind of an indirect cause, and therefore he doesn't, it, it kind of, we would um, suggest, uh, 
kind of dismisses his responsibility because he's not the direct cause, right? But, uh, you know, he, he used the illustration, for instance, you know, if I hit a billiard ball, let's say billiard ball A, and it hits billiard ball B, and then B hits C, notice I am the ultimate cause of C's movement, but the movement of B is the proximate cause or the author. And therefore, the reason why C moved, we could say, was because B hit it, even though I'm the ultimate cause. But notice what he says. He says, indirectness of causality does not in itself mitigate responsibility, at least on the human level. For instance, if I hire a hitman to kill someone, right, I'm the ultimate cause because I put up the money to do it, right? I'm responsible for the murder just as well as the man who actually pulls the trigger. And of course, scripture warns us that enticing someone else to sin is itself a sin. And so being an indirect cause doesn't eliminate us from being culpable for causing a particular issue. And so this one doesn't work either, this indirect cause. Right. I would say that there's probably a little bit to to take uh, 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 to task with with frame on this uh, point. Um, I I don't think he quite uh, gets it. And uh, again, it's probably me because frame is way smarter. But... um, to harken back to Scott Christensen again, I would say, uh, what about free will in addition to the, the what about evil book uh, really kind of drives that point home well. So it, it, if you don't uh, at least buy the argument, if you want a good kind of understanding of what the kind of reform perspective of that is, the what about free will is, is a really solid book on, on talking about the primary and secondary um, causes there as well. So. Just uh, I'm plugging away at at, uh, at Christensen. Uh, he's, he's a good guy. So, all right. Uh, next is the ex lex defense. So in the volume just cited, Gordon Clark, uh, presuppositionalist, also presents another theodicy, which, if sound, would render his indirect cause defense wholly beside the point. So, which one does he actually believe? It seems like maybe he's hedging his bet a little bit. Well, <laughs> Uh, Gordon Clark's uh, argument is that God is ex lex, which means outside the law. And uh, ex lex has a, a, a very uh, solid foundation within the framework of, of, of um, the American independence. So uh, if, if you've heard that before and you're like, wait, I think I remember that uh, back in high school, uh, if they've even covered uh, the reasons for why rebellion happens other than tea and tax, um, th- th- that's, uh, that's maybe where you heard uh, ex lex from. <laughs> So uh, the idea is then that God is outside the law. The God is above the law. He's outside it. He prescribes it for man, but he doesn't follow it. He tells us not to kill, yet he retains for himself the uh, right to take human life. Thus, he does not himself obey the Ten Commandments or any of the law given to man in Scripture. Morally, he is on an entirely different level from us, and therefore he has a right to do many things that seem evil to us, even things that contradict scriptural norms. Hmm. All right. So this outside of the law. Now, Frank tells us that there is some truth to this particular approach, right? Uh, You know, we see in Scripture does forbid human criticisms of God's action, right? How can we criticize God? He's God, right? And the reason is, as as, uh, Frank tells us, Clark points out here, divine transcendence. He's above us. He's other than us, right? 
And he says, it's also true that God has uh, some prerogatives that he forbids to us, such as the freedom to take human life, and yet God is free to take human life. But he says, Clark forgets or perhaps denies the Reformed and biblical maxim that the law reflects God's own character. Right. So God's character is reflected in the law. And so to the, uh, obey the law is to imitate God. It's to be like God, and it's to image God, right? And so the law is a good thing because it reflects who God is, God's character. And so if it reflects God's character, how can he be outside of it, you know, so to speak, at least totally outside of it is the point he's trying to make. All right. Well, obviously, there's much about God that we cannot imitate, including those prerogatives mentioned earlier. Satan tempted Eve into seeking to become like God in the sense of coveting God's prerogatives, Genesis 3, 5. But the overall holiness, justice, and goodness of God is something that we can and must imitate on a human level. We're told to be perfect just as our Heavenly Father in Heaven is perfect. So there's some uh, ideals that we are to... Uh, uh, be like God in. And so uh, we, we seem to run into that issue there as far as our definition. But we can be assured that God will behave according to the same standards of holiness that he prescribes for us, ex except insofar as scripture declares a difference between his responsibility and ours. So things like murder. M murder is the unjust taking of a human life. But God is the just judge. So when he takes human life, uh, he does it so justly as, as a means of, of, of justice and sometimes of grace as well. And so uh, uh, he limits us from making uh, those types of, of decisions that, uh, uh, you know, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So we can't take vengeance, but God is able to take vengeance. And it's from his character that he can do vengeance correctly, not through hate or through uh, malice, but through uh, love and justice and uh, divine right uh, as as creator. But and he also allows, you know, the government to, <laughs> to take human life as well, right? Not unjustly, right? Not innocent human life, but as a way of, of punishing evildoers. Right. And so individually, we we are we don't have the responsibility, the you know, the uh, uh, the, to take human life like God does, even uh, in, uh, you know, guilty human life. But God can mediate that to the governmental authorities, right? And so just like he stands above those types of laws, uh, so the government, he allows the government to stand above those laws, but it still applies to us. So there's some distinctions here with regard to what God can do and what we can do. Mm -hmm. But on this basis, the problem of evil returns. If God prohibits us from tormenting others, how can he allow his creatures to be tormented? Thus, we cannot agree with Clark ex lex defense. It simply is not biblical, and the problem remains to be solved. All right. And so again, he, he returns to the, you know, to the idea that this isn't completely, uh, doesn't completely resolve the, the problem of evil. <clears throat> All right, the uh, the final one then here at the end of this chapter is what he calls the ad hominem defense, right? And he doesn't really put this as part of the big three, right? right. The nature of evil, 
or the contribution of evil or evil in God's agency. This one is kind of separated because he's going to suggest that this really isn't a, a, an attempt to solve the problem of evil, right? Yeah, so what is this ad hominem defense? Well, he says some Christian apologists have approached the problem of evil on the theory that the best defense is a good offense, <laughs> right? Thus, when an unbeliever questions the consistency of God's sovereignty with his goodness, right? How can God be sovereign but yet allow evil to happen if he's good, right? Uh, the apologist then, in this instance, with regard to the ad hominem defense, replies that the unbeliever has no right even to raise the question, or he cannot, on the on his basis, even distinguish good from evil, right? And so uh, Frank tells us the point is correct as far as it goes, right? He's argued earlier that moral values presuppose the absolute personality revealed in Scripture, and so if there is no such God, uh, then the world is governed either by chance or by impersonal laws, neither of which commands the loyalty required by moral obedience. And so um, to, to, to values and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, to a certain extent, right, the point is correct. But he doesn't think this one uh, solved the problem of evil or even attempts to solve the problem of <laughs> right. evil. Right. It's it's not a, a, a bad tool, but again, uh, the offense versus the defense <clears throat> is is the distinction here. So, you know, the by what standard why, are you able to call anything evil? Uh, you know, we're just all protoplasm swimming in, in the universe, <laughs> and we just happen to bump into each other, and some of us just overtake another person. Well, that's just how I'm able to survive because evolution has deemed me the ability, uh, uh, given me the 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 um, the chance to uh, uh, to assert myself in, in such a way. And so that that's just what happens uh, when I um, robbed the convenience store is I was asserting <laughs> my will for survival. And so you can't hold me responsible for immoral actions. Boy, that that's that's really charged language that I don't appreciate. And so um, th that's that's obviously one way to take it. But again, we're still left with the question. So if, if you're talking about a debate where someone says, um, you know, uh, uh, the presence of evil, or why is there evil in the world, saying, well, you know, you give me a definition of evil, there's still left on your plate, what is the definition of evil, and then why does, why does it exist there? All right. All right, so it's also useful to bring this point to unbelievers' attention. He, in a way, has a more serious problem than the believer does. If the believer faces the problem of how there can be evil in a theistic world, the unbeliever faces the problem of how can there be either good or evil in a non-theistic world. So the, so the unbelievers has two problems, <laughs> right. and we only have one, so yeah. we win, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out, but you have to figure it out twice as much. So. Yeah. <laughs> we just have another life to, to do it in as well. As, so you've, you've, you've only got 80 years, so good luck. <laughs> well, valuable as this point in is, is in and of itself, However, it's not really a means to the answer of the problem of evil. It's an ad hominem argument. It's against the person, against the man. That is, to, it addresses the person rather than the issue. The unbeliever asks, how, how can you account for evil? How can you, how can you look at uh, the, uh, this news uh, article and say that God is real? And we reply that, well, you have a worse problem. How do you, how do you determine what is evil? Again, not a not an incorrect question, but it doesn't answer the uh, explicit uh, question at hand. 
you may indeed have that problem, but we are there. Um, we don't therefore uh, have the answer to uh, his question that he asked at the beginning. And so uh, this is kind of the end of this particular chapter in his book. And so he's kind of given, you know, this um, uh, approach where he says these particular answers are not really biblical. To a certain extent, they are. But to, for the most part, the Bible really doesn't give these as an answer. And so what he wants to do next is move now to what he believes is a biblical answer to the uh, particular problem of evil. And uh, that's what he does in the next chapter. Right. So um, again, a shorter episode for this one, uh, but um, I'm I'm going to suggest if, if you want to kind of uh, dig more into this, um, I, I'll leave a link uh, to the uh, playlist for the short clips for Scott Christensen's uh, What About Evil, where we cover this a lot more, a lot in detail. Um, uh, and many of, of the ones that we covered here in these three episodes um, uh, kind of do carry over from that book as well. Um, uh, so uh, I highly encourage uh, a, a look at those as well. So um, put the links there and you can uh, follow the ones to your own heart's content as, <laughs> as, as far as there um, um, and pick up uh, Christensen's book, uh, which at the time of this uh, recording, uh, the uh, the 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 shorter one isn't quite out yet, but uh, but I do know he's working on it. So um, if if you're if you're looking at that book and going, that's a lot of pages. Um, well, first of all, we did the hard work for you, uh, which is our <laughs> job here. But uh, but also he's he's got a, a shorter one coming out as well. All right. Uh, so next we have to figure out what frames answer is going to be if he has one. And so that's what uh, um, uh, chapter eight is. Apologetics is defense. The problem of evil part two, a biblical response. So guess what? We're still staying in the Bible for a biblical reason is exactly what he said needed to happen at the beginning. He critiqued many positions as not being biblical in, in any regard uh, and some biblical, but uh, not uh, not. Uh, accurately found in the Bible, according to him. Uh, and so he's going to give us the, the perfect answer here. And so, uh, you know, if, if an answer, a perfect answer exists, then uh, it, it, it must exist because it's better to exist than not exist. So there it is. All right. Uh, so uh, chapter eight next time. So uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.